0: So church, we're in Colossians, this book written by Paul from a Roman prison, and we've come to that part of the book in chapter 3, where he is encouraging the church to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and then he makes an incredible, jolting application statement. So this may seem like a meandering study, but it's really focused on the text, so read it and may God use it to the glory of his name. Paul is exhorting the church to live out the Christian life from the gospel foundation, the glorious theology of the cross and the work of Christ. He rehearses that in chapters 1 and 2, in the first part of chapter 3, where he talks about setting your heart on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, and you will appear with him in glory. And he says, as you reflect upon this, put to death... Therefore, what remains in your body that needs to be put to death. And he mentions uh, several sexual issues. And then he says this, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then he says, but this, in these you once walked. you, you, You were living this way. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And I said last week that that anger is the subtle disposition right below the surface of just being ticked off. And that wrath is the episodic eruptions of anger. Slander is speech that defames people around you. Obscene talk is either filthy language or Degrading speech about other people and lies are just not telling the truth. And I said last week that we can take a vow of silence and not slander and not lie and not participate in obscene speech. But with the telling issue is the first two words, anger and wrath, which is what's observable and known. So in this passage, Paul is saying the Lord wants your heart worship. He wants your whole person to reflect the glory of Christ. And then he says this. Do not lie to one another, saying that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So he says, past tense, you've put off the old when you came to Christ by faith, and you've put on the new when you came to Christ by faith. You received the Holy Spirit, past tense. But then he says this. It's a present tense verb. He says, and, which is being renewed or reclaimed or refurbished, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so he is, he is pleading with the church to grow in knowledge. He said, you know, you've been transferred the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're adopted in the family of God. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 talks about knowledge. He says, "We, We have prayed for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10 of chapter 1, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, Knowledge. So the plea of the Apostle Paul is that that you would grow in the knowledge of God. That you would, in this little stick figure, you you would put to death the deeds of the flesh. And you'd grow in the the understanding of who Christ is. that, That you would so live that you would experience a joy and usefulness and contentment and a clear conscience. As you grow in the knowledge of God as compared to people who leave off the watch. And they struggle, and it says that they, they have misery and uncertainty regarding their salvation and, and, and deceit in their hearts and lies. So I, I, if you're a believer this morning, the Apostle Paul says to us, and I say to you, grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And one of the great issues that I think is so silly in our, in our present context is your people say, well, you know, I am more of an emotional person. I, I don't really get into doctrine and catechisms and Reading books. I just I just want to experience Jesus. That's just that's really a proto-gnostic silly statement. God made you with a mind. And the Bible says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your mind. And so we need to think biblically. And we need to think well. We need to develop a, a Christian world and life view and to to, to to just embrace that a few verses. Second Corinthians chapter three says this the Lord is a spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Present tense into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, the Holy Spirit of the living God is transforming you if you're a believer you have received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and makes application and rearranges and convicts and builds up and supports and, and, and blows down areas in our life. We are being transformed. I want that. I want that. I want, from glory to glory, I want to grow in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 says, we don't lose heart, though outwardly the, out, the, the, the outer man is Perishing. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. So, so grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. See, one of the problems in uh, Colossae was, was what we call the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy went something like this in part. Uh, there may be a great God... But it cannot be defined as a great God who is pure through an emanation of angels with each angel being less and less pure in the final manifestation. A, a, an angel who is far from pure made the earth and mankind. And the earth and mankind is just a mess. It's a putrid mess. It's, it's just it's, 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 it's just a void of nothingness. And, and so that's called pre-gnosticism. And Uh, it was gaining great credibility in the Greco-Roman world. And that's why Colossians 1 is so important, this hymn to Christ, where where the Apostle Paul says this, which is really a right hook to the jaw of Gnosticism that knocked them out in the first round on the canvas. They did not get up. It wasn't a technical knockout. It was a knockout punch. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, And by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hear that? All things were created by Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And this is an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. That everything around us, it, it, Jesus created and in the new heavens and new earth, everything around us is going to be a thousand times greener or, or a thousand times more luscious or a thousand times more refreshing. And, and so we, we say to the Gnostics ah, in our own culture, I mean, do you enjoy and embrace and are you glad over the beauty of creation? There's a wonderful book uh, by a guy named Mark Knoll who's a professor of church history, taught at Notre Dame for years, very, very bright. Is entitled uh, The Intellectual Life According to Jesus Christ. It's really written to people who are in scholarship. I read it for some reason. Um, but but he, he says this in the book. He says, "...the affirmation that Jesus is the great creator carries the strongest possible implications for the intellectual life. Put most simply, for believers to be studying created things is to be studying the works of the resurrected Jesus." Loyalty to the reality of Christ, the Redeemer, does not require disloyalty to the reality of Christ as Creator and Lord. There is simply nothing humanly possible to study about the created realm that in principle leads us away from the glory of Christ. The world was brought into existence by Jesus Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. So, when I get to travel, oftentimes out west or other places, the pilot will come on the PA system and say, We are now flying over the, the Rockies or the mountains of, of Washington State or the Alps in, in Europe. And uh, so you look out the airplane, and there are snow covered mountains that take your breath away. It's the National Geographic on steroids. And so I'm sitting next to my wife and I go, "Look at that." And she says, Isn't that? "It's incredible. It's beautiful. Wow, can, can we look Can we, wow, look at that, look, look, look at the other side. Look over here, look at that. And, and you look around and nobody else is looking. They're all in their personal, what you call activity center, movie things, watching movies about zombies or something like that, you know. And you go, "God, do not let me lose the wonder of glory in the marvelous, magnificent. Glory of creation. and I say that to us right now. We live in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay? If you are a writer for Southern living, this is heaven. This is heaven. Every time I pick up Southern living, which is not very often, to be honest with you, it's all about Charleston. I mean, we live in a beautiful city. Do, do you glory in creation as you drive through our beautiful city? Have we become... Uh, Immune to beauty. See, when he says grow in the knowledge of Christ, it's a call to arms. It's a call to think biblically. It's a call to not give in to the Colossian heresy. It's a call to rejoice in the physical. Now, in the early church, there's a a, a controversy, and and the heretics said Jesus was a created being. There was a time when he was not, and the people who loved the Bible and stood by the apostolic truth said, no, Jesus is eternally God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so they won the day. and They wrote the Nicene Creed that was codified in 381. But anyway, uh, there's a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius gloried in the physical reality of Jesus, the body of Jesus, the, the work of Jesus. This is what Athanasius read. It's just a short paragraph. Listen to me. Athanasius, one of the heroes of the faith. In fact, if you're pregnant, that's a great name for a boy. I mean, really, Athanasius. We can call him Nathan or At or something. Athanasius is a cool name. Almost as good as Buster. No, it's just right there. So Athanasius said this, Jesus, the mighty one. The creator of all himself prepared this body in the Virgin as a temple for himself, and he took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death in place of all. And he offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for his church, for his people. So that in his death all might die, and by the law of death, thereby he abolished death with finality. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, when Paul is is exhorting the church to, to live in the way of the Lord, he just says this in verse 14. It says, knowing, chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that... He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, a real physical body. So grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And there's a quote in the bulletin, I won't read it, it's there from Mark Knoll's book, where he says, well, what does this mean in the life of the scholar, to have a mind that thinks like Jesus? He says it means that You read the Bible, and you pray, and you sing hymns, and you think, and and, and you think deeply, and you ponder. It's like anybody else. Grow. Think well. Bring everything under the lordship of the reality of Christ. Do not buy the Colossian heresy. So some of you are going to disagree with this, and that's okay. I could be wrong. When I was a young Christian, there was a little chorus we sang that went like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, I understand one part of it, but the other part of that, I'm going, no, 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 time out. To understand the created Christ is to mean that the beauty of creation takes on a heightened glory. That the joy of the physical and the physical body takes on a heightened reality, because I'm going to have a resurrection body one day. We embrace the created word. We, we, we rejoice in the goodness of God's creation, and, and we live there. That's why. Our purpose statement is equipping people to pursue Jesus passionately to impact the culture. Be equipped. Think well. And that's why it's, it's such a joy when you see people using God's gifts in a good way, and it's such a sadness to see it in the other way. I, I was reading a fitness magazine recently. I don't know why, but I was. And it was about diet and exercises and how to do this and how to do that and how to have chiseled abs and all those things that uh, are in the rearview mirror, if if they ever were there, to be honest with you. And uh, I'm I'm happy with a two-pack, much less a six-pack these days. But anyway... And right in the middle of this very good magazine on health and nutrition and, you know, exercise is a, is a four-page article on human sexuality written from a Gnostic pagan point of view that mocked anything that we would hold sacred about sexuality. And I just sat there and I wanted to weep how, how people would take a good gift and just totally abuse it. So embrace life. Love life. Here's a quote from a Irish poet I read the other day. I thought this is really good stuff. So here it is. Evangeline Patterson said, I was brought up in a Christian movement where because God had to be given preeminence, nothing else was allowed to be important. I have broken through to the position that because God exists, everything else has significance. I love that. Everything has significance because God is the creator and his name is Jesus. So grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Be renewed in your mind, present tense. Now, so, so now Paul makes an application statement. Quite frankly, if, if I were studying the book of Colossians, and I, I would think that the very next thing the apostle Paul would say is, I've said, told you to put this to death. Now I'm going to tell you what to put on. Verse 12, put on, we'll cover this next week, as God's chosen and holy people, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, so forth and so on. Now, but he doesn't do that. He makes a jolting application statement that really takes your breath away. And he he says this, this this is a wild statement. So this, really put on your seatbelts. This is wild. He says this, here in God's church, among God's people, here there is not Greek And Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Boom! I I can't begin to explain this to you because I can't get my mind in it. Paul is writing as a Pharisee, former Pharisee. Paul, as a trained Pharisee, believed that if he ate a meal with a non-Jew, it was a dirty, detestable act. A Pharisee. Paul hardly approved of the murderous rampage against believers who were Jews who had become followers of the resurrected Jesus. Paul, the Pharisee, writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek in the lordship of Jesus, which is unbelievable. That's not a paradigm shift. That's a titanic iceberg movement. So get it. There's no ethnicity because Christ is all and he is in all. In 1994, many of us remember this. There was a situation in this country, Rwanda. In 1994, for 100 days, church, April to June, the majority group of Hutus went on a murderous rampage against the Tutsis. And in 100 days, we don't know the exact numbers, they killed between 500,000 and 1 million people in a country of 11 million. It's unbelievable. That'd be, like, that'd be like 40 million people being killed in our country. They turned on their neighbors, their coworkers, their friends because they were not hutus. And they went to village maiming, raping, butchering, and they cried out, kill the cockroaches. Kill the cockroaches. It was horrible. ethnicity. And yet if you go to that country today and you go into an evangelical church, you will, feel, you will find people who will stand up as they read the scripture and pray and say, listen, in this country, there's no Hutus or Tutsis or Pygmies because Christ is all and he is in all. We are people of Jesus. See, the gospel destroys the supremacy of Ethnicity. And then next he talks about the religious heritage. He says there's neither neither circumcised or uncircumcised. Once again, this is Paul who wrote Philippians. he He said, you know, I with great pride say when it comes to keeping the law, I was faultless. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses. And he says, I rejoiced in my circumcision because it was a sign of being part of God's covenant community. And yet he writes here to this church there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. This is wild. Those of you who are older will remember this 70 years ago. The subcontinent of India was given independence by Great Britain. And so they arbitrarily, I think arbitrarily, somewhat drew a line between Muslim Pakistan and Hindu India. 1947, it's called the Land of Partition. And so in that year, between, some people say almost 2 million people were murdered in India and Pakistan. We don't know the numbers because the Western press did not cover it because They were kind of barred from doing this, and the Indians and the Pakistanis don't talk about it because it's deeply embarrassing, But, but trains would leave Lahore, Pakistan, to go to India full of Hindu people. They'd be met at the border by people who'd rob them and then just butcher them, and they called them blood trains because they would come into India with the blood flowing from the carriages. True story. The same happened from India going into Pakistan. Two million almost two million people. To be not to be overly graphic, but uh, in, in their traditions, um, Hindus are not circumcised. So roving Muslims would go through and say, Are, are, are you a Hindu or Muslim? And they said, Well, we're, we're Muslim to save their life. And they would take the clothes off the man if he were uncircumcised, they would butcher, butcher the man and his wife and his kids in the streets. It was horrible. It was horrible. There's a book called Freedom at Midnight that is an incredibly powerful book about this whole issue by LaPierre and Collins. The same guys who wrote Old Jerusalem. But, but, but if you go into Lahore or Islamabad, Pakistan today, or New Delhi, India today, or Mumbai or Kolkata, or Agra or Hyderabad, and you're in the evangelical church, you'll stand up and you'll read the Bible and you say, there is no Muslim or Hindu here. There is no Pakistani or Indian here. Because Christ is all and is in all. Jesus is more superlative than our religious heritage. And then Paul says there's neither barbarian nor Scythian. Uh, a, a Scythian, we know from, from history, was some, a group of people that lived in northern Greece, and they were referred to as uneducated, violent, uncivilized, and deeply inferior people. And you know the word barbarian you get this origin in our language from, from people who, who can't speak well. They kind of stumble over the words, so they're a barbarian. And so Paul says that there's no cultural superiority in the body of Christ. None. There's no Scythian. There's no barbarian. And Serbia, the year 1389. Here, 1389. Okay. When did Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492. So 103 years before Columbus, there was a battle fought in Kosovo called the Battle of Kosovo, and the Turks beat the Serbians. And so every June the 18th, since then, I mean, since then, Serbians get together for a festival and a worship. The men get together and worship, and they pledge to uh, avenge the Battle of Kosovo. I, I mean, I, I love history, but 1389? I mean, come on. So in 1989, there's a man named Slobodan Milosevic, a businessman, who started a Greater Serbian Party, and he spoke on that particular day in June 28th, and they say a half million to a million people were there, Serbians who were busting and and came in by train and abroad to celebrate greater Serbia. And three years later, the Serbian government started what they called the embrace of Bosnian Serbia and the Muslims who lived there. In a country of 1.9 million, they killed 100,000 men. And they would systematically abuse and rape the women. And it only stopped when the United States Air Force started bombing them horrible. And yet, if you go to Sarajevo today or other cities in that area, and you're in the evangelical church, you stand up and you say, brothers and sisters, there is no Bosnian, there is no Serbian here, but Christ is all, and He is in all. And he says this: there's no slave nor free. Now, I, I, I'm 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 thinking you're sitting there, the church of Colossae. The pastor, Epaphroditus, says we have a letter to read from the Apostle Paul. And, you know, you're you're a Scythian. You can't read. Or a barbarian. You've been trained. Or a slave. Slavery in the Roman Empire, there were some who were top-notch. They they would work for a few years and buy their freedom. But there were many down the thing who, who would never, ever, ever get out of slavery. It was a caste system. You were property, and so you may be sitting there. You're a barbarian. You're a Scythian. You're a slave, and it says, you know, he says, you know, there, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Yeah, we kind of get that. Circumcised, uncircumcised. Yeah, we kind of get that. No Scythian. You go. What? No slave. What? No free man, because Christ is all and is in all. And you're sitting there, and you said, I've been looking for dignity all my life. I've been looking for something to hang my hat on to say this is who I am. I was just given it. I have dignity because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Boom! I'm I'm telling you, I just, I, I read this, I get goose flesh thinking about the incredible application in life of these dear people. A Scythian, uneducated, cast out, made fun of, barbarian, made fun of your accent like a Southerner going to Minnesota. I've experienced that. A slave, part of the caste system that can never work their way up. Free in Christ. Christ is all, and he is in all. There is no economic distinction. So church, I'm just pondering this passage, I'm going, wow, this is, so so let let me tell you this. I do not get my attitudes toward ethnicity as a believer primarily from the 15th Amendment, which after the Civil War said that black men had the ability to vote, which is wonderful. I do not get it from 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, when the Supreme Court ruled that separate is inherently unequal. I don't get it from the incredibly articulate, well-thought-out-of statements by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who was a, a man who spoke of nonviolence and equality. and Wonderful, wonderful. All those were secondary. I primarily get my cues on ethnicity from the bloody cross of Jesus who died for men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. And so so Paul's making this incredible application, and it takes my breath away. Go a step further. My primary identification is not in my family. I love my family. I love my heritage. One of our core values as a church, one of our ten core one of our ten one of our uh, ten core values is the, the importance of the family. We believe the family, as defined by the Scripture, is vitally important, and it's under assault now. I was at St. Philip's Episcopal Church oh, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, for a prayer meeting during the day. of some type of thing. That I forgot what we were doing. I was there, and I was a small group of people, and and I was sitting next to this woman, maybe in her eighties, early eighties, and we were talking, started talking, and I said. Uh, where do you worship? She says, "I worship here at this church, St. Phillips." I said, "Really? Said, yeah. How long have you been a member here?" She said, 300 years." And I went, what, what, do you, "What do you say to that? Hey, March Madness is coming, you know." Just uh. and so during the break, I talked to one of the pastors, and I said, "What? What? What, what was that?" He laughs. She loves her family heritage. And so her family has worshipped here for 300 years. And so she counts herself as part of that family heritage. I said, oh, okay, I guess. So I went back. The same woman came sitting next to me. We started talking again. And she said, you know, my, my family is a member of the Society of Cincinnati. I went, wow, cool. I went, oh, well, that, well that I didn't know what that was. Go Reds, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, you know, that type of thing. Tony Perez. So I had to go to the library and look it up. Back in those days, we didn't have the internet. So you had to go to a library or go to an encyclopedia and look up these things. It's amazing, it's amazing. So I looked up the Order of Cincinnati. Order of Cincinnati is an incredible organization. It, is, it was started in 1783 and they are the, 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 by the men and their descendants who were officers in the American Revolution. Primarily, who fought with George Washington. I mean, that, that would be really cool. And it started by a guy, named, just as an aside, a guy named Henry Knox, who was a major general in the war, who was a, a bookseller in Boston. And as a bookseller, he had time to read, so he decided to read about war and especially how to use artillery. And so when the war started, he goes to Washington and says, I can do the artillery. He became Washington's right hand man, and an artillery soldier, because he read books in Boston. It's amazing. So he started, and the first guy that presided over the first meeting was a colonel by the name of, very bright guy, Alexander Hamilton. It's an amazing story. It'd be really cool to write a musical about that event, but that's beside the point. So I I thought, you know, in a way, it would be hard if you had a great family heritage. My family heritage is not that great until recently. I I gotta tell you the story. So my grandmama died a few years ago. She's 94. A few years before she died, I was talking to her, and she said, Buster, I, you, I've never told you this, I don't think, but uh, you are related to Daniel Boone. I went, really? Now, Daniel Boone was a man, a big man, with an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. He was a man. So I thought, Daniel Boone, I went, well, well maybe, you know, Grandma's 94 almost, he's just kind of. But I got some books, and sure enough, Daniel Boone's granddaddy married a woman named Sarah Calloway. My grandmama's maiden name was Calloway, so that's as far as my research went because I didn't want to know different. I closed those biographies and said, "I'm related to Daniel Boone." So, and now it's a standing tradition in our family. Before GPS, we'd be out traveling, and my wife would say, "Are we lost?" I say. You're with Daniel Boone's great, 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 great grandson. We don't get lost, you know. And, and so, uh, anyway. Now, some of you have a wonderful family heritage. Let me just say this. Jesus is greater than your family unit. A couple of stories. My well, first was here a long, long time ago. We'd pray before the service. Very kind deacons would pray with me and We were standing there, I hadn't been here very long, and one guy came running and said, we have a special guest today. We only have just a handful of people. He said, "Uh, Governor James B. Edwards is here. And I thought, whoa. I knew that he was Secretary of Energy under Ronald Reagan at that time. I thought, whoa, this is pretty cool. And they said, we need to recognize him. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. I'm I'm a young guy. They probably thought, oh, great. I said, What if we don't recognize the guy that's here today who's a day laborer and lives hand to mouth? But we recognize the governor of South Carolina. I said, and they said, okay, okay. They probably thought, good grief, you know. And since after that, I got to know Dr. Edwards, Governor Edwards. He's a wonderful man, loved the Lord. Uh, Many of his family members go to church here now, and I like most of them. But But if it happened today, I would do the very same thing. You have to be very careful. Last example. So, um, The reality of Jesus is greater than my nation. Our citizenship is in heaven. I love our country. I am proud to be an American. And yet, I need to remind myself There's neither American or Nigerian or Ecuadorian or Ukrainian, but Christ is all and is in all. Today we have Vacation Bible School here, and Steve Tuck and his troop, they do a great job. And it's it's lights and it's cameras and it's flashing strobe lights and it's people with white gloves on. I don't know what it's called. we are doing pantomimes. And it is like going to Disney World, except it's about Jesus. And it's really good. When I grew up, we had vacation Bible school. Those of you that are older, you know, it was really pretty boring. We'd line up outside, and we had the American flag and the Christian flag and the Bible. And we would march in behind the American flag and the Christian flag and the Bible. And we'd pledge allegiance to the American flag. And then we'd pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One brotherhood united under all mankind for service and love, something like that. And then we would pledge allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. And I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path, and I will hide its words in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now we'd be outside, we would fight over who carried the American flag. Because only a real man carried the American flag. And the Bible invariably was carried by a cute little girl, not a guy. I've repented of that a thousand times. If we did it today, I'd say, guys, let me carry the Bible. Let me carry the Bible. I love my country, but let me carry the Bible. So so I look at this and I go, God, give us the grace to live this way. Put sin to death. And the application of putting sin to death and putting on the newness of Christ is, is Christ is in all. And he is all. And I am committed to that. So, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. And we're thankful for the mercy of Christ. And we're so thankful that there's neither Jew nor Greek circumcised uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave or free but Christ is all and is in all and lord let us be people who pursue justice for the oppressed but but, but let us always realize that every distinction every impulse regarding nationalism Every impulse about family superiority or economic superiority or ethnic superiority or religious superiority, every impulse that would castigate others and elevate yourself is not from you. Thank you that the foot, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, level. And thank you for those of us, many of us here are barbarians and Scythians. We've been considered to be kind of outcasts. Thank you that in Jesus that is laid to rest. So blessed be your name for the bloody cross and the glorious work of the Savior for us. Thank you that you pray for us and you love us, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.